And as you're being seated, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 17. We've been working through Matthew's gospel for some time now, and we come upon chapter 17, the account of the transfiguration. I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. A friend of mine recently shared with me a story of how he and his wife went to a restaurant, uh, a, one of several successful restaurants in a chain of restaurants in his area. And during their meal, someone walked up to the table and asked about their meal and uh, asked if they'd tried a certain dish. And his wife you know, said, no, we didn't, but she politely refused. And my, my friend leaned in and said, we'll have two. And the gentleman walked away and my friend leaned to his wife and said, when the owner of six restaurants recommends you try a dish, you order it. You see, he knew he, who he was speaking to. She had no idea who they were talking to. Have you ever been in that situation where you're talking to someone and, and don't even realize who it is you're speaking to? Or maybe you've been on the other side of it and, and someone is trying to explain to you something that is well within your area of expertise. It's almost like listening to little children try to Little children try to explain what their parents do. And my mommy just sends emails all day. Your mom's a lawyer. She does a lot more than emails. My dad fixes toilets. He's a contractor. Okay. There might be some truth in what you see and what you say, but you don't get the big picture. Likewise, Jesus' disciples, and often us as well, we, we get a little bit of the big picture, but we don't see the whole thing. Not long ago, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And their answers, while having a kernel of truth, didn't tell the whole story. And when we don't know who we're talking to or what we're dealing with, we often fail to listen as we ought. And we fail to respond in the way that we should respond. In Matthew 17, Peter and James and John are given a glimpse of the bigger picture. Jesus shows them uh, not who the crowds say He is or who even the disciples believe He is. Jesus shows them who God says He is, which is in reality 
who He is. So the question we hope to see answered in these verses is, well, who is He? Who is Jesus, really? But more than that, why does it matter? Why is it important that we know and understand who He really is? The first thing we see is that He is our King. We've been speaking of that in our worship this morning. We've been singing of that in our worship. He is our King. Now, though we take Scripture each week and look at a a few paragraphs here and there uh, each Sunday, looking at these smaller portions, we need to always keep in mind the bigger context, the big picture. What was happening just before this? Well, we saw a few weeks back as we looked at Matthew 16 that Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? Or rather, who do people, other people say I am? And they said, well, some people think you're John, some think you're Elijah, some think you're uh, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, what about you? The ones who follow me, that, that know me well, that have seen what I do and heard what I say, who do you say I am? And at that time, Peter's eyes were opened and given insight by the Holy Spirit. He said, you're the Christ. You, you are the Messiah, the, the, the Son of God, the, the long-awaited salvation, the, the, the ruler of God's people that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. And, and I'm going to build my church. And it will be so strong that even death and hell will not defeat it. But, but first, in order to do that, he says in chapter 16, verse 21, from that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus was going to suffer and be put to death. Now, what kind of kingdom is that? If Jesus is the king, what kind of kingdom has a dead king? But it gets worse. Because not only was Jesus going to suffer, he then tells his disciples that those who follow him must also suffer. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save my life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It wouldn't be much longer after these events that Jesus would be arrested. He would be condemned. He would be tortured. He would be crucified. And then his followers would be hunted down and persecuted. If they are going to persevere and build his kingdom, if they are going to be able to withstand the days ahead, his followers need to understand that despite what they experience, despite what they see, Jesus is king and he is in control. Because what they're going to see and what we experience is that the world and the enemy of God that is at work in the world would like you to believe that they are in control. They would like you to believe that they have enough power to oppose and resist and withstand and overcome God's kingdom and to instead establish their own kingdom. They would like you to believe that in time their victory is inevitable and that if you do not side with them that you are on the wrong side of history. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, when the soldiers knock on the door and arrest the disciples, and when forces of evil in every age act against God's people to fill them with fear, to intimidate, to oppose, to resist, it can look like they're right. It can look like the Christian hope is futile, or at best, a long shot. And that's why God calls His people to look behind the curtain of history. That's actually, if you've ever read the the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we we 
we tend to misunderstand that and think it's a book about the future. It's not. It's Revelation literally revealing, pulling back the curtain, not of the future, but of all history, past, present, future. And the consistent message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is King from the beginning of the book to the end, and at every moment in between, He's in control. And there is nothing that can happen in all of history to overthrow or oppose what He has put in place. And that's what's happening in these verses. Jesus pulls aside a few disciples and says, look guys, before I go to the cross, before you go out to suffer, you need to remember and see who I am. They need to see that Jesus is our King. So in verse 2 of chapter 17, Matthew describes what they see in this way. It says, He was transfigured, which means kind of transformed, right in front of them. And His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as light. Now when Jesus came to earth, He humbled Himself. Jesus is God taking on human flesh. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count being equal with God, something that He had to cling to or grasp. But He instead emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The disciples were used to seeing Jesus as a lamb, humble, weak, human. They saw His flesh. They saw Him eat and drink. They saw Him just like us. Meek, humble. He called Himself those things. But as the Christian poet and hip-hop artist, the ambassador, puts it, man is used to seeing Jesus in His lambness. But what they don't understand is this lamb is running every single planet. You see, we are familiar with Jesus in His humility. But we neglect to see His power. The lamb is also a lion. Jesus is a lion. That's what, that's what John would later describe in Revelation 1. John, who was there in Matthew 17 and saw Jesus revealed in this way, saw Him again. And in Revelation 1, describes it this way, that He was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around His chest. The hairs of His head were white like white wool, like snow, and His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars, and from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. You see that John's trying to put together words and images to describe how radiant and amazing the glory of Jesus is. That sounds like the Jesus on the mountain, right? Shining. But many people can shine and wear white, even in Scripture. Even sometimes angels glow and look white and bright to those they appear to in Scripture. That's not what makes Jesus a king. What reveals Jesus as a king in these verses is, is verse 5. When it says, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now that at first might not say to you, Oh, that's a king. But about a year ago, as we were in Matthew chapter 3, we saw the baptism of Jesus. And in chapter 3, verse 17, we saw what happened there. That when Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Same language. Same language as we see here in Matthew 17. And when we looked at that story, I shared with you how those are not just the words of a proud father pointing out his child that he is so proud of the way I do, and some of you are sick of hearing me talk about my children and how 
how awesome they are and the great things they do. Look at my son. Look at my daughter. This is my child. I'm so proud of them. And that's great, but that's, that's not what God is saying here. When he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. As we looked at the, uh, the story of Jesus' baptism, we saw that that phrase is the story of a coronation. It is a king in Israel receiving his crown. It is the language taken from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 8. The Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the king says, I will declare, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. An Israelite hearing those words, this is my son. The Lord saying, this is my son, is hearing the Lord has set up his king here. This is our king. And so to the disciples, the disciples facing a difficult future, to the people of God in a world that rejects the king and rejects his kingdom, the message we have here is that Jesus is king. He is in control. Though in the days ahead, unspeakable things will happen. And it will seem like evil has won. And the enemy will triumph over the grave of God's anointed one. He is still king. He is still in control. And so to us, when we are fearful, when we are frustrated by a world around us, God invites us to look behind the curtain of history and to see what is the real story. People of God today, the church, brothers and sisters, I imagine that many of you, like me, many of us at times are frightened. We are frustrated. Many of you feel powerless in the face of a hostile world. A world that sets itself against God and His anointed one. Not on the slides, Randy, but Psalm 2. Do you know how Psalm 2 begins? It says, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot together and set themselves up against the Lord and His anointed one? Does it ever feel like that to you? Does it ever feel like the nations are raging against God and the leaders of the earth are setting themselves up against God and His anointed one and His people? And do you know what it, the psalm goes on to say that the Lord does in response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs laughs and says look i have set my king in zion this is my son i will give the nations to him that is the message we need as god's people when we are fearful when we are frustrated when everything seems spiraling beyond control the one in heaven laughs and says no 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 my king is on his throne amen yes you can amen that that's all right jb phillips the author wrote a book not uh, about a century or so ago I bought it based on the title alone. Your God is too small. Your God is too small. And he goes on to describe what we need to hear, which is that for many of us as Christians, we worship a God of infinite power, a God of absolute control, and we live as if it's all up to us. Brothers and sisters, your God might be too small. And what we have here at the Mount of Transfiguration is just a peek at, at a glimpse of the glory of the one who is in control of all things. What would your prayers look like if that was the God you had in mind? If you saw Jesus as he is on the throne? What room is there for fear? 
What room is there for, for feeling the pressure of, of needing to take care of everything in your life? When He is in control. He is our King. and He is in control. That He is our victorious King is probably the most significant message of this passage, but there is more. Because He is not just a King, He is also our prophet. The disciples saw more than just Jesus on the mountain. In verse 3, it says, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. My first question was, why these two? Why not Abraham and David? You know, why, why not some of these other figures, Moses and Elijah? Well, well, some suggest that Moses, being the one who gave the law to Israel, God's law, is associated with the law. And that's, that's consistent with Scripture. And Elijah, being the first of the great school of prophets, Elijah represents the prophets. And if you were a Jew in the day of Jesus, whenever you would say the law and the prophets, you were speaking of all of Scripture. And so here you have a representative of the law and a representative of the prophets speaking to, pointing to, indicating Jesus, which would tell you that Jesus fulfills, completes, upholds all of the law and the prophets. There's probably a lot of truth to that, but I, I don't think that's the whole story. I don't think that's why Moses and Elijah were there. It could also be Moses and Elijah are both uh, leaders of God's people during critical moments in their history. Moses leading them out of captivity and bondage, which is what God's people wanted, to be led out of bondage. Elijah, during a day of great rebellion and apostasy, when God's people had turned away, Elijah called them back to faith. Moses and Elijah, men who had encounters with God on the mountaintop. As, as Jesus is there on the mountain with His disciples, Moses met God Himself on the mountaintop as a great cloud, just as here, a great cloud descended and spoke and revealed to Moses such things that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining with reflected glory. Elijah went up to the mountaintop and called the prophets of Baal there to, to, to prove the legitimacy of their God and, and had 450 prophets crying out and, and cutting themselves and screaming to their false gods to, to start a fire to prove they were real. And Elijah danced around and said, call louder, maybe he's in the bathroom, maybe he's sleeping. And then once they'd given it their go, Elijah steps aside, dumps seven barrels of water on the sacrifice and the wood, prays to God, and fire descends and burns not only the sacrifice, not only the wood, but even the very stones. Moses and Elijah, these mighty men of faith, who had encountered God on the mountain, there again on the mountain with Jesus. And that's all great and true. But I think the most important reason that we see Moses and Elijah is because in the Jewish mind, these, these two biblical figures were associated with the coming Messiah, the one who would come, which meant the beginning of God's salvation. Moses had told the people in Deuteronomy 18, he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, someone who will be like you. It is to him you shall listen. And then the Lord said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the people of Israel from that time on waited for the prophet, capital P, the prophet. The one who would speak God's word to his people. And the belief was that when that prophet came, that would be the end times. 
And so as those that were in Sunday school heard this, as, as uh, Philip, when he had met Jesus, he went to go find his friend Nathaniel. And he said, we found the one, the one that Moses was talking about. We found him, he's here. And likewise, Elijah, in Malachi chapter 4, the Lord promises, Behold, I will send to you Elijah, meaning another prophet, like in, in the spirit of Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Some similarities there. Both the prophet that promised through Moses and the coming of Elijah were meant to communicate the word of the Lord. And they came with a warning that if that word was not heeded, there would be destruction. And so we have Moses and Elijah, these two men whose, whose appearance indicates that the end is here. If you are a Jew in the first century Roman Empire and you see Moses and Elijah, you're thinking, holy cow, this is it. This is, the, this is what we've been waiting for. The prophet, the one who would speak to us God's word, the one who would lead us out of bondage, just as Moses had done. The prophet is here. So what do you do when you see the prophet? Well, he tells you what to do in verse 5. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now we misunderstand the word prophet. The way we use it nowadays, when we say prophet, we think we're talking about somebody who speaks of the future, right? Somebody who tells the future events. That's not what the Bible means when it speaks of a prophet. A prophet is not somebody who tells the future. A prophet is someone who speaks God's word to God's people. Now at times they would speak of what was coming, but overall they were speaking God's words to the people. And we, what are we called to do? We are called to listen. Not just to those who literally sit before Jesus and hear his words from his voice, but even to us today. The same command applies. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the author writes, long ago, in many times and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and we now still are in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You catch the implication of that. There is nothing after the revelation that comes through Jesus. No new word from God. No new revelation. We listen to Him. We listen to what He has given us in Scripture. But we have to make sure that we are listening you can hear and not listen. Have you ever experienced that? Somebody who was hearing you but not listening to you? I know my wife is saying yes right now. Because I hear her sometimes without listening to her. She will tell me something. And I hear the words. And I know I hear them. And then the next day she says, hey, did you take care of that thing I asked you to do? What? And then I remember. Oh yes, I had heard that. But I didn't listen. How do we know that we have listened and not just heard? We know when we obey. Peter did that, remember? Peter, Peter heard Jesus saying that the Son of Man, Jesus, must suffer and die. Peter heard that, but he didn't listen. Because what did he do? He pulled Jesus aside and said, no, 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 Jesus, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I hear what you're saying, and I've got a different plan. He heard, but he didn't listen. And he actually does it in this passage too, right there in, in verse 4. He begins speaking when he should be listening. 
He says, oh, Lord, it's good that we're here. Uh, if you want, I'll make tents for you. Let me set up some tents for you and Moses and Elijah. And, and he actually gets interrupted. Now, you know you're in trouble when God himself interrupts the words you're saying. The Lord interrupts him in verse 5 and says, Peter, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen. Now, how many times do we do that? Though? How many times do we start talking or start planning or start worrying or start problem solving without having first taken the time to listen, to seek God's wisdom on the matter, to go to his word, to understand his will better? We know we're listening and not just hearing when we obey what he says. He is our prophet. Listen to him. So Jesus, who is, who is he? He is our king. He is our prophet. But lastly, we see that he is our priest. A priest's job is to represent people before God. And in doing so, to offer the sacrifices that God requires. The author of Hebrews, again, points this out many places in the book of Hebrews. Here's one of them in, in Hebrews 9.26. He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And the book of Hebrews spends chapters explaining how Jesus is a different kind of priest than the ones we've seen before. He is unique. The other kinds of priests, they would sacrifice animals. They had to make many sacrifices again and again. They had to sacrifice for themselves, for their own sins, before they could sacrifice for other people. The author of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's the kind of priest that all those other priests were just anticipating, just a, uh, looking forward to. They were the symbol, not him. Jesus makes one sacrifice that, that does its job. And it's not an animal. It's himself. That's what Jesus has been trying to tell his disciples already. He's saying, look, I, the Son of Man, I have to suffer. I must go and be killed. And I'm going to rise again, but I still have to go and be killed. Even if that doesn't fit their vision of what God's kingdom would look like. And so then in verse 9, he instructs them as they're coming down, tell no one of this vision, don't tell anybody what you saw here, until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then the disciples have some confusion about Elijah. Like, Jesus, doesn't the Scripture say that Elijah has to come first and then the Messiah will come? And Jesus has to clear that up. See, because the problem was when Elijah comes, I don't know if you remember what it said in Malachi we looked at a few minutes ago, that Elijah was going to come and what was he going to do? He was going to restore everything. He was going to turn the hearts of the sons and daughters back to the fathers. He was going to, restore, he was going to bring the people of Israel back to their heavenly Father. And so what the disciples are saying, look, Jesus, doesn't, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? If Elijah has come and restored all things, then how is it that you're going to be killed? If all things are the way they should be, then there's no place for a Messiah who's going to die. Jesus explains in verse 12, I tell you, Elijah has already come, which we find out means John the Baptist. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. They arrested him and they killed him. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. That's actually what Malachi prophesied. He says, look, if they don't respond when Elijah comes, I will strike the land. And that's what Jesus says. Look, they didn't respond to Elijah. They did what they wanted to him. And so they're, they're going to have to strike me down too. Jesus will be struck down in the place of 
the land. Jesus is telling them is, look, the victory of God's kingdom follows a path of suffering, a path of sacrifice and death at the hands of God's enemies. Your great king, your great prophet, will also be the priest who has to give up his own life. And the significance, the magnitude of his sacrifice needs to be seen from the perspective of what they just witnessed. That it was not just a good and righteous man who was giving up his life. It was not just someone who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and got pulled in to carry a cross that gave up his life. It was the king. It was the glorious and great God himself who gave up his life. We sing about that, don't we? Amazing love. And can it be that you, my God, would be the one to die for me? The wonder of that should fill our worship. That he who was robed in heaven's glory, he whose face shone like the sun, would be stripped bare and allow that glorious face to be spit upon and struck and ultimately to hang low in death. There's much we could take away from that for ourselves. What room is there for pride on my part when my Lord humbled himself to that degree? Why would I try to live as if power and strength and my own image are more important than anything else when Jesus set aside His power and His strength and His reputation and His image on my behalf. Why would I act, why would we live and act as if true and lasting change in people's hearts and in society and in nations, why do we act as if the path of true change is through strength and force and compulsion and reordering society and things the way we want them to be. That's not how Jesus did it. He set aside power and went to the cross. He did not stand up on the hill and reveal His glory, His brightness, the the radiance of His glory to all people. What did He do when He stood on the mountain before all people? He allowed Himself to be nailed to a cross. That is the path of God's kingdom. There's a book I've mentioned before to you by author Matt Michelatos. The book's called Imaginary Jesus. Another critic described it as Gary Larson of the far side meets C.S. Lewis. It's it's intentionally comedic, but very profound the way this man writes. And in the story, it's uh, it's fictional, but uh, the author comes to discover that the Jesus that he follows and and has coffee with and listens to and believes in is an imaginary Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. And so he goes on this long series of comedic and crazy adventures trying to track down and know the real Jesus, who he really is. And all the while he's being tempted and pursued and deceived and, and, and tracked by any number of other imaginary Jesuses. Jesi, uh, Jesus is. He meets patriotic Jesus. He meets men's retreat Jesus. He meets hippie Jesus. He meets King James only Jesus. He meets all the different Jesuses that are out there. Each of them having perhaps a a glimpse or a kernel or even a large portion of the truth. But none of them is who Jesus really is. What he's trying to do through comedy is drive home the point that very often We build our lives and our worship around an imaginary Jesus. 
A Jesus that has a degree of truth. But because it is not the whole picture, is therefore not true. And the ones who construct those false Jesuses, that's us. We are the ones who make the imaginary Jesus. The disciples, the crowds, they all had a Jesus that they wanted to see. A Jesus that would lead them to military victory. A Jesus that would lead them to political power. A Jesus who would heal and restore, but not challenge or convict. Certainly not a Jesus who would suffer. But the real Jesus, the one worth following, is the Jesus as He reveals Himself. The one He shows Himself to be. Who does He say He is? Not who do they say He is. Not who do you say He is. Because you and I will get it wrong. Who does He say He is? He is the King. The King who is always in control no matter how difficult it is to believe that at times. No matter what it looks like in the world, He is in control. He is the prophet who speaks God's last and authoritative word. And we must listen to Him. Really listen and do what He says. He is the priest. The priest who offers His very life as a sacrifice, which is the only way that God's kingdom will come to victory. Because unless sin is covered and dealt with and punished, then there can be no victory for God's kingdom. That is who He is, your prophet, your priest, your king. Fix your eyes on Him. Let everything else fade away, but fix your eyes on the Jesus as He reveals Himself. He is the source and the guarantee of your salvation. If you fix your eyes on that, Jesus, you will not be deceived. You will not be discouraged. You will instead be strengthened for salvation. Let's pray that the Spirit would turn our eyes towards Him today. We pray, Heavenly Father, that by Your Spirit, You would open our eyes, enable us to see our Savior. To not just see the Lamb dying in sacrifice, but to also see the lion victorious in eternity. To see our great king who rules forever. To see the prophet who speaks that which we need and must hear and obey. To see the priest who gives up his very life in our place. Teach us to see these things. And in seeing them, teach us to be encouraged and strengthened by your gospel and your word towards the obedience in which there is life. We pray these things in the name of our Savior.